The pandemic has crippled New York's economy. The state now $16 billion in debt. We talked to State Senator Shelley Mayer about New York's bleak financial picture, what it means for schools, and people struggling to get the benefits they need. Hi, Senator Mayor. Thank you for joining me today over the phone. Missing My you pleasure. in person, though. We don't. I haven't seen you in quite some time, but uh, uh, that's just the way the world works now. Let's start with talking about the financial picture. You know, um, coming out of Albany, uh, you chair the State Senate Education Committee. Because of the pandemic, I know the governor has said that state school aid could decline by as much as twenty percent. Um, what kind? What would those kind of cuts mean for education? Well, they would be really disastrous. And in White Plains, for example, um, I just heard the superintendent today say that twenty percent is six million, and then if their budget goes down because of a cut of six million. Um, that would be a contingency budget would be another six million so in effect they would lose 12 million dollars but six million just off the top so that is in a district that uh, you know isn't is doing well under the circumstances no one is doing great because in the budget we adopted all we did was uh, allow the same amount that districts received last year to be replicated this year only because we got federal cares act money Mm -hmm. The state itself would have cut it. But now we have a $12 billion gap. The governor has mentioned repeatedly the possibility of a 20% cut in school funding. Uh, that would, you know, it would really be disaster for a number of reasons. One, as I say, we gave flat funding, so schools are already behind the eight ball. Two, nobody can go above the property tax cap because of the economic impact of coronavirus. There's just not the ability to sustain additional property tax burden on people. Three, there are additional costs that we're going to bear when children go back to school building, like compensatory learning to make up for the time that this experience has cost some children, mm -hmm. whether it's, uh, you know, falling behind, whether it's not having access to technology and broadband. Uh, whether it's special needs kids who didn't get the range of services they might have gotten in school, or whether it's just the social-emotional existence of a school environment that students lost, and, and now there's going to be some makeup time. So there's additional costs dealing with compensatory learning. And fourth, we don't know what the next school year will look like. If we have to have staggered shifts in order to maintain social distancing, that may cost more. So the idea that we are going to cut 20% is really disastrous. And there's only one way out of it. And that is to get the federal government, and particularly uh, the Republicans in Congress and President Trump, to work with the states, and particularly the state of New York, and get us the money that we absolutely need to get out of this. And the House Democrats bill that was put forth this week is a very good step forward. It gives unallocated money to the state of New York, $22 billion this year. It gives allocated specific money for school funding, so that would flow in addition, and it gives money to municipalities. So we need something like that in order to get out of this. There is not a state solution. I mean, I have some state ideas, but they are modest in the scope of how big this problem is. And for schools, and whether it's um, urban schools, thinking of 
Yonkers Public Schools, which even with this year's budget uh, is targeted to lay off 189 people, including teachers, social workers, psychologists, or whether it's, you know, more successful or more affluent school districts that are also going to be forced with layoffs. I don't see there's any district that can avoid layoffs with a 20% cut. Mm -hmm. So the answer really is federal funding. What do we do if, you know, we live here, we know that our own electeds, our own Congress, uh, representatives in Congress are supportive of this. What can we do being in a blue district in New York um, to try and put the pressure on the Republicans where the logjam is? Well, we have to really lean on our colleagues and like-minded people in Pennsylvania and in other states that have Republican senators. You know, I think to me, and I'm a very partisan person, this is, though, the kind of issue that is, it truly isn't partisan. We have stepped up for states that are controlled by Republicans many a time when situations were dire, and this is as dire as it gets in New York, given the number of deaths and the costs and the incredible impact on our economy. So if you know people in Pennsylvania where they have a Republican senator, any other state with Republican senators, uh, indivisible chapters there, we need to persuade um, these Republican senators and President Trump that the approach that the Democratic conference and Speaker Pelosi put forth is is the way to go. Um, the money's going to be spent responsibly. I mean, I think the governor has been just an extraordinary leader in this, and we absolutely cannot dig ourselves out of this on our own. So let's go back to the number, because I think in, in, in talking about it earlier, it maybe kind of uh, didn't stand out as much, but I believe you said we're twelve billion, right? Twelve billion. Yes, twelve in billion, and that's right now. Of, <laughs> that's right now, on top of the fact that we adopted a budget that already had and anticipated about uh, eight billion dollars. So you know, there's another uh, additional pot of money that is now a shortfall, and and there could be more. And under the budget. The governor is entitled to come back to us three times during the course of the year. Mm -hmm. The first period has now come and gone, but he hasn't put cuts on the table. And uh, he's entitled to come back and say, I need to cut because we didn't get as much money as we thought. So it could get worse right. during the course of this year. But $12 billion, as you say, right now, Shannon, um, that is the reason he is threatening these 20% cuts. And even though I'm an education person, let's just think 20% in healthcare right mm -hmm. now is, is unthinkable. And 20% in local assistance, that means our youth bureaus, that means our, uh, certainly all of our other systems that we rely on, government, social services, everything that can be cut would be cut. And uh, we just, it's quite unimaginable to, to think that we would do that. So we have one place to place our energy, and that is on Congress. You spoke earlier a little bit about how schooling likely next year is going to be different. It's not going to be what we're used to. Do you have any idea what it might look like or what we need to prepare for? Can you expand on that a little bit more? Well, I don't think we know, and I think this is another area in which the governor is going to exercise a great deal of control. Um, I think that uh, the governor has a task force on reopening schools. Unfortunately, it did not have anyone from K through 12 in it. 
and it didn't really have much of a downstate representation at all, and, and I think they're trying to correct that. The chancellor, Betty Rosa, who she's the head of the New York State Education Department, was a former superintendent from the Bronx who has a real feel for how schools actually operate. She put together her own group, which is much more school-focused to make recommendations. But I believe that it's likely we're going to have to deal with uh, potentially social distancing and perhaps have staggered shifts in school. If you're my age or older, you remember, you know, out of the baby boom generation, high schools in the city and in urban communities did have staggered shifts. There was an early shift like seven to one, and then there was a second shift in high school. So that's, I think that might be a possibility to reduce uh, the number of students in school at the same time. I think, and I hope not, but I think uh, this selection of Bill Gates to have some input into the process, which I'm not a big fan of, it could be to promote some kind of mixture of distance learning and and in-person learning. I'm not a fan of that. I think we have done the best we could with distance learning, but in-person learning is a completely different experience. And I think school is not just about, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's Mm -hmm. about a whole lot of other things. And those are experienced in a group setting in a physical building. The third thing I would say, though, I've always believed schools belong to the community, not just like 7 to 3 p.m. So, You know, if we have to use weekends and evenings and be flexible and work with our unions to find a way to do it, I'm hopeful we can do that because everyone pays for these schools. They belong to everyone, and um, we need to make it work better. So I would like to see less distance learning and more flexibility of building use. But again, that's going to require everyone to uh, probably, you know, make some compromises. Right. So let's pivot to another topic. You have made it a mission of helping people who are having a hard time getting unemployment assistance. So many people are unemployed. I I can only imagine how overwhelming it is for the system and for the people trying to get assistance. What kind of stories are you hearing from people? The first thing is there, the State Department of Labor unquestionably was completely overwhelmed because this came so fast. They have an old system, very frankly. They were not prepared for the scope of the problem, and and that is all understandable. Mm -hmm. It's coupled by the fact that the federal bill, the CARES Act, added a new wonderful provision called pandemic unemployment assistance for people self-employed or were not technically employees of someone, either gig workers, a lot of people in the theater and arts in my community, Mm -hmm. or people who own small businesses, and they're entitled to some form of income replacement. But what happened, that being said, is they didn't communicate very well, and they also took too long to sort of uh, fix some of their systemic problems. And a result, there is just, there's two things. There's people who are literally desperate desperate to put food on, the, food on the table for their families who don't have enough to survive since March 15th, two months without income. They just can't make it. So we have that group of people who are panic-stricken, and then we have people who are just mad. You know, they tried to get through. They're frustrated with the bureaucracy. They try and try and try. They've been on the phone with the Department of Labor, uh, you know, 50 times of calling in one day and not being able to get through. And I, you know, I, my heart is 
really has been broken about this situation. I have all these small businesses, all of these employees who, you know, make basically 70000 a year or less, and they don't have anything to fall back on. And I, I have been uh, not critical so much as insistent and uh, determined to be a loud voice on behalf of these individuals. So I have five members of my staff in my district working full-time on unemployment. Mm. I follow up with the governor's office every day on the most desperate cases, and I send the rest. Uh, my staff is unbelievable. You know Mary Kate Sullivan, who's yes. fantastic. Yep. She answered this email at 11.30 at night from a woman from Brooklyn who had been trying for eight weeks with straight unemployment and could not get it resolved. She had no no problems. She just couldn't get paid. And two days after Mary Kate dealt with her at midnight, I would add. Right. I mean, who does that? Mary uh, Kate. The woman, Mary Kate, the woman <laughs> works for got her unemployment. Yeah. She knew someone in my district. And, you know, and I... All of my colleagues, I was on the phone today with all of my colleagues with the Commissioner of Labor, and they all, like myself, have at least 500 and 600 cases of many people who did everything right and can't get a resolution, or maybe they made one, you know, left one thing out or didn't know something, and then don't have an opportunity to resolve it. So, it, you know, for me, it's personal. Mm-hmm. It's just very personal. Uh, it, it's we can't ask people and blame people and we have to be empathetic and efficient and competent that's what government you know in a time of crisis has to do and so my staff really gets the sense of urgency and that is where i think you know i pride myself these when these calls come in we do our best right away then we go back and check on them then we go back again and check on them I want them to know someone is listening, even if we can't fix it. We hear them, we understand them, and we empathize, and we are doing our best to get it resolved. And it's gotten much better. It's not good enough, but it is It is slowly getting better. So that being said, what would be your advice to somebody who is struggling with the system and needs help? Give you a call? Find their own state senator? Uh, find their own state senator and email that person because we are not in the office although we do pick up our phone calls every day and we go through every message the most effective way to get the data we need is for someone to email your senator if it's me it's smayor at nysenate.gov but all of my colleagues are spending all of their time resolving these issues uh so they should email and then we send along these cases directly to the department of labor and the governor's office every day so, Senator Mayor, any final thought? Well, first place, everyone calls me Shelly, Shannon. Shelly? So <laughs> I'm, try- I'm trying to be very official. <laughs> no, I know. You don't have to be official. Oh. We're, all, we're all equal in this battle. Yes. You know, I, I, I want to appreciate um, the opportunity to get to so many people through Indivisible, which has been, you know, not only an ally of mine personally and politically, but just a force for change that has changed this country. I really do believe that. And I think uh, we together we have the opportunity to bring people of goodwill back to their senses uh, and to recognize if a government is competent and empathetic and relies on science, you know, we can disagree. We can we can have all our disagreements all we want, but we need our government to work. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate, you know, I really appreciate the commitment of indivisible members to the grassroots part of 
changing our democracy. And I certainly am a beneficiary of it, and I hope my constituents are. Thank you, Shelley. Well. That, that, that means a lot to me, and I know to everyone involved in the movement. And uh, these are definitely trying times, the most trying time of my lifetime. Uh, so, yep. you know, hopefully we can uh, work for meaningful change and uh, return that, you know, trust in government and have functional government at all levels of government. I mean, I think we're so blessed here in New York State to have, you know, uh, good government, but... Uh, it's definitely, we definitely need to kick it up a notch, definitely take back the White House and Senate. As you said, you just see how, you know, these elections are so important and engagement is so important and voting is so important. So hope that, you know, that message gets through. But so thank you so much for everything that you've done as well. Thank you, Shannon. And leadership and all of the folks in indivisible westchester who you know have done such a job and and so all indivisible really you you have changed the face of american democracy and we'll continue to work to get a change for good thank you shelly take care okay and thank bye, you for Shannon. working thank so you. hard for everyone all righty okay, talk bye. to you later bye-bye thanks for listening to indivisible westchester the podcast proud member of the Demcast Network. Find us online at indivisiblewestchester.org, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay safe and be well.